Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Hello and welcome to Engage for Success Radio and show number 522 in our weekly series. Engage for Success is a not-for-profit movement and the UK's leading voice on the topic of employee engagement. We are out there raising awareness and running events through our area networks around the country and our topic and sector-specific thought and action groups are developing research, publishing case studies and shining a light on all the great practice out there. You can visit engageforsuccess.org to learn more and while you're there, why not sign up for our weekly newsletter so you never miss out on any of our great free resources, events and updates. And yes, I'm Andy Gorham, your host for today's show and founder of BizJuicer, an employee engagement, retention and culture change consultancy that helps businesses become stickier from the inside out. So okay then, in recent years, we've witnessed a global awakening to the importance of the topics of EDNI in the workplace. From the rise of social movements advocating for greater equality and representation to the shifting demographics of our workforce, the call for inclusive practice is louder and more urgent than ever. However, creating meaningful change is complex and challenging. It's not just about policies and programs, but about nurturing a culture where every individual feels valued empowered and that they belong. Now joining us today is an expert in this field in Maria Marukian. A renowned organizational development consultant, speaker and author, Maria's work in fostering inclusive workplaces has been pivotal in helping organizations not just adapt but thrive in this landscape. With her insights we'll explore how to build systems and cultures that truly cater to everyone, ensuring that diversity goes beyond being a buzzword and becomes a foundational pillar of our work environments and helps foster competent and respectful places to work. So whether you're a leader looking to drive some change, an HR professional keen on developing more inclusive practices, or just someone curious about the future of work, this episode is for you. But enough from me. Let's meet Maria. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you, Angie. I am so pleased to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you here, Maria, and on such an important topic, too. Um, Now, look, before I run away with myself and get all excited and jump straight into it, let's just take a breath and do me a favor, please. Could you just give me a little bit of insight into you, your background, what you're up to today, and really why this topic is so important to you? Absolutely. So as you and your listeners can hear from my accent, I am American. I was born (laughs) and raised in Detroit, Michigan, the Motor City, home of Motown music. Um, And I think to understand why I have chosen my professional path, I think it's really important to share a bit about my personal story because that gives some insight. So uh, I grew up in an immigrant family. My father's family were Armenian refugees who had to flee Istanbul, Turkey during the genocide. And they actually settled in Cuba. And my father was born and raised in Havana, 
by a single mother and two older sisters. And then they came to the United States when my dad was just a young man. They had no money. Uh, they did not know the language. My uh, my father was the first in his family to graduate from high school, let alone go on to receive advanced degrees. And uh, my mother was of Polish origin, although she was born and raised in fourth generation American. She grew up in this tiny little community in Michigan where everybody spoke Polish. So that was her first and only language for the first several years of her life. And so my parents had this very interesting sort of uh, bicultural, bilingual lived experience that I think was, uh, you know, was was translated down to to me and to my sister as well. Um, they were both public school teachers in Detroit, and so our home was always filled with people from a variety of different cultures, walks of life, uh, a lot of educators, but also people coming from a variety of different professional backgrounds and educational backgrounds. And so I was exposed to this diversity of experiences and diversity of thought from a very young age. I was taught to challenge many of uh, what others might perceive as sort of the dominant narratives um, of our society from a very young age because of the different um, voices and stories that were uh, that were always sort of present in my life. And so I think these experiences really compelled me to have this endless curiosity and compassion for, for all human beings. Um, but also, I think something that was deeply intrinsic in my upbringing was the, the notion of using my power, my societal power, my standing um, in, my, in, in the society to amplify the voices of those who are often made voiceless. And that has really been the compass throughout my life and I think has influenced my career pursuits. I've always been focused on how to make our systems, our organizational cultures more just, more equitable, and more honest. Well, that's, that is some context there, uh, Maria. Um, uh, typically, technology is having some fun and games with us. I think that, that it's mm -hmm. making your voice sound a little uh, robotic at times. But we will carry on because this is so important. And I'm fascinated by that, that backdrop you've just painted. And I guess that has given you a very global view uh, of the issues that we look at today. I know you're based um, in, the, in the U.S., um, but from a global perspective, what what is going on out there at the moment that is rightly elevating the need for us to really put more emphasis and importance into this 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 topic that we're here to talk about today? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, certainly uh, coming from a U.S. standpoint, uh, there are many examples that I can provide, but I don't think that what we're experiencing in the United States is unique or isolated. Mm. This is really happening on a global scale, and it has been for quite some time. And so I think, you know, at the crux of it, this notion of us versus them is so deeply human <laughs> and so universal uh, we are intrinsically, I think, as human beings, often sort of, uh, I mean, we're set up to seek out safety and sameness, right? We, we gravitate toward people that we perceive as like us because that represents safety. 
and um, and any and in particularly in situations or at, per, at specific points in time where we individually or collectively perceive the world around us or the situation around us as threatening, we kind of go into those camps of us versus them. And we perceive anyone that we see as the other to be dangerous and threatening. And that has been increasing on a global basis uh, in, in recent years. And political scientists have been talking about this and raising alarm bells increasingly of this notion of what they call pernicious polarization. And, you know, this, this idea of pernicious polarization has been something that's very, um, very interesting and profound to me. It occurs when people's political ideologies become so deeply interwoven and interconnected with our social identities that we can't, we can't parse the two. And we become so entrenched in these mutually distrustful camps where we see anyone on the other side is not only wrong, but we start to judge them as ignorant, immoral, and even dangerous uh, to our society. And that has been certainly happening in the United States, but we've also been seeing this on a global scale in Europe and Latin America these nationalists and far-right parties that are growing um, at an alarming rate. And often what has been considered sort of fringe rhetoric and ideology is becoming increasingly adapted as mainstream ideology. Um, and I think a lot of this is driven by uh, backlash to many of the demographic changes that we're seeing in our societies um, as they're becoming more racially ethnically and culturally diverse. Uh, this is happening not only because of increasing just, you know, mobility um, and migration patterns, but also because of climate change, because of ethnic cleansing that is impacting um, a lot of times the global south and pushing an increasing number of refugees to seek asylum in what are considered more stable democracies. So just, you know, I, I'm kind of giving a little bit of a political science uh, sort of backdrop to this, but I think that this is the recipe for the us versus them that we're seeing happen um, on a global scale. And then it, on top of that, you know, when we think about, for example, in, in the spring of 2020, as you mentioned earlier, there was this sort of awakening to the importance of equity, diversity, inclusion. And, and mm. you know, it's interesting because an awakening, I would say a reawakening, right? Because this has been around for a long time. There have been many Absolutely. moments over the course of, you know, the last few decades, let alone generations of, of this sort of increased um, social reform, social change, these awakenings um, focusing on human rights and civil rights. But 2020 in the United States, I think much of this was launched by the, you know, very public and uh, gutting uh, murder of George Floyd um, at the hands of police that really sort of launched, uh, you know, this, this issue of um, racial violence and racial inequality to the center of not only um, conversations in the United States, but it really, it launched uh, a response, you know, this notion of Black Lives Matter, for example, on a global scale. We saw people marching in the streets of, you know, not you know, every place from the UK to Kenya, right? Uh, and, and, and people 
stepping up and saying, this is happening. We need to do something about this. And so I think all of that is contributing to this sort of not only global awakening, but also the inherent backlash and retrenchment that often follows these awakenings. And so we're kind of, we're in the middle of this maelstrom of um, upheaval, of social upheaval. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't apologize for kind of putting the political landscape because it's driving a lot of a lot of this stuff. I mean, the mm-hmm. the points that you make around polarization, again, I completely concur with. In a ridiculous way, it feels as though our worlds are actually shrinking when mm-hmm. the, the the world is getting smaller. Right? Is in it's easier to communicate and go places and see people and exchange views, but at the same time, we're we're now algorithmed to within an inch of our life to only see the things that uh, we like or we respond to or completely opposite us to gauge some sort of reaction, it seems. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty dodgy landscape to be working on. And if we, if we, if we move on from the, the, the whole, the global landscape, how are you in your work seeing this really affect work, the workplace? What, what what do you see as the sort of the, the the major challenges and the things we really should be focusing on and the pitfalls to avoid and and where's your work taking you, Maria? Yeah. So well, you know, first off, all of these uh, demographic changes that are happening on this on this global scale are impacting our employee populations, right? And so yeah. uh, you know, in every industry and in every sector, we are seeing. Uh, you know, just the demographic shifts in our in our societal populations impacting who is coming into the workplace, and and we also just thinking about it from a generational perspective, uh, the workforce of today and tomorrow. When we think about what we in the United States refer to as Gen Z, and and the next sort of generation being Gen Alpha, Um, they're more racially and ethnically and culturally diverse than ever before. And they also have the highest numbers of of self-proclaimed LGBTQ plus representation. Um, When we think about religious diversity, when we think about, um, you know, uh, neurodivergence and neurodiversity, um, there is a, a significant um, increase in just sort of the diversity of thought and experiences that are coming into the workplace because of this next generation. And, um, and I would also argue that just by nature of uh, the way that um, parenting norms have changed, the way that educational norms have changed, um, the way that societal norms have changed for this new generation, there's a higher level of not only emotional intelligence, um, but also social awareness. And so there are significantly higher expectations on the part of Gen Z and um, subsequently Gen Alpha when it comes to we not only wish to work for organizations that are inclusive, we demand that our employers demonstrate their commitment to a more just not only system with, within their organization, but we want to see organi- our organizations and our employers actually care about changing the world. Um, and that's something that we, I don't think we have seen in, in previous generations. And so I think that is a significant change um, that organizations and leaders are kind of grappling with right now. How do we attract and retain 
the the brightest talent of this new workforce um, that is demanding that we actually care about the future of the world and 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 are investing in trying to make it better. Um, and you know, I think there are also just some pitfalls that I have seen many organizational leaders uh, struggling with when it comes to this. And one is, you know, a lot of times when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it gets boiled down to this oversimplified notion of representation. Mm. And, um, and that is problematic because, yes, absolutely, we want to increase the representation of, um, of diversity to, to match the the demographics around us, but we also have to look at where does that diversity reside in our organizations. And more often than not, and this is, we work with clients from a variety of different industries, uh, different sizes, uh, different, um, and, you know, not only in the United States, but globally. And one of the challenges that we often see is that um, there is an over-representation of um, racially and ethnically minoritized individuals and women, often in uh, either lower paying positions or positions that we might consider to be sort of the back of the house, right? Um, operations, mm-hmm. administration, uh, there's, a, there's a dearth of representation the higher up you go. Um, and also in terms of more kind of high profile, front facing, uh, positions within organizations. And from an equity lens, oftentimes what happens is that when you do have racially and ethnic, ethnically minoritized um, re- representation or gender representation in positions of leadership, uh, those individuals are often judged by a different set of standards than their counterparts. And um, this is a phenomenon that we uh, that we've heard, uh, you know, that that scholars have referred to as the glass cliff. We often hear of the glass ceiling that you can, you know, um, if you're a part of sort of a marginalized identity group, there's only so high you can get. Um, But even when people do break the glass ceiling, they often are put on the precipice. Right. And 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 often find themselves falling off what is called the glass cliff because they're put into these precarious positions where they're set up to fail. And uh, case in point, we've seen this in in terms of a number of, for example, um, academic leaders at Ivy League institutions just in the last few weeks in the United States. Uh, So, you know, there are so many examples, but that being just one um, of where uh, and and also in terms of. chief diversity officers and and people who are put into positions to lead efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion that often are not given the resources or the support that is needed to actually carry out these initiatives. And then when they inevitably fail, they are punished for it and pushed off the cliff. Um, The other challenge that I think a lot of organizations are struggling with, and and again, this is, you know, um, not to assign blame, but just to acknowledge how challenging this is when we're talking about institutional change. It's not enough to uh, to just do some training or to have some celebratory events 
uh, or maybe even put in some policies, uh, you know, HR policies or try to, uh, you know, sort of recruit from a, a more expansive pool. All of those are good, but when it is not part of a concerted effort to actually change the organizational culture, to shift the balance of power, and to create a space of true inclusion for those who have not been included, then we see this retrenchment, right? Where it's just like, gosh, this, this is so hard. And we don't see how we're making progress. We don't even know exactly what progress is supposed to look like. And so we kind of, without even realizing it, slide back into the way things have always been. And then we sort of throw our hands up in the air and say, I guess this didn't work. Um, so maybe it's not as important as we thought it would be. And so I think that's a challenge that we're starting to see um, in the after effect, the afterglow of 2020 and the, the significant increase in, um, in, in interest and, you know, stated commitments to diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, when the going gets tough, I think a lot of times we, we shift the, the proverbial goalposts. Right. So it's, um, gosh, well, we, we don't, you know, we don't see this process, this process actually leading to the changes that we thought we wanted. So we're going to time and effort and money toward it. And that is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. But that's often what happens. Yeah. I mean, just listening to you, you, you talk about this, I mean, in the work that you do, and I'm sure in colleagues and other businesses and, and uh, people that you associate with, ha what are the secrets? What are the keys to, I guess, almost having to continue the momentum to uh, maintain the energy and really bring about effective, lasting change? W what are the successful people out there doing, Maria? W what is it that they're doing differently? Um, how much does education play? How much does intentionality play in here? Just explain a little bit about that to me. Absolutely. And there are many success stories. So I'm, I'm glad you yeah. asked because I don't want us to sound as though there's no hope. Uh, no. And, and education plays an, an incredibly significant role, particularly um, education for people, not only at the senior levels of leadership, but I would argue even more importantly for the people at the mid-level management uh, position, because those are the, the keepers of the culture. Um, those are the individuals that have the most uh, regular and important interactions with the, the broader workforce. And those are the individuals that are going to also be the gatekeepers of information from leadership to the workforce and from the workforce to leadership. And so when you have education that is not focused on mere compliance for middle managers, but really a focus on this is good for you and for your team, it is actually going to not only make your life easier in the long run, because you're going to have uh, teams where there are higher levels of trust, higher levels of psychological safety that ultimately are going to lead to a more engaged um, workforce. And you're going, your people are going to want to stay longer. 
uh, they're going to want to give that discretionary effort. There's a significant amount of research that has been done by the Gallup organization, for example, on the connection between employee engagement and inclusion and equity. And so we know that when, particularly when middle managers are cultivating an organizational culture on their team that is rooted in emotional intelligence, right? Compassion for the individual members of the team, for the collective good of the team and the workforce, and that that is directly connected to the organizational mission, that's where you start to see um, progress take place. And so, for example, I can give you a couple um, stories uh, specifically yeah, yeah. of the clients that we've been working with. So um, one client we started working with uh, several years ago and we conducted a baseline assessment. We asked the workforce, you know, tell us what, what you like about the culture um, and where you think there are some challenges. And one of the, the things that came out of that was we have a generally very nice organizational culture. People on the surface are polite and um, are, you know, are generally nice to each other. But that niceness does not necessarily translate to inclusive uh, uh, inclusive decision-making, um, and often people find themselves feeling that they are on the receiving end of more subtle acts of exclusion, um, particularly by people in mid-level management positions, that it's, it's harder for people to, for the, you know, these employees to pinpoint, not that I'm being uh, treated in a blatantly disrespectful way, but it's just these little paper cuts where I feel as though I'm belittled in meetings, where it feels as though I'm, I'm shut down when I have an idea that is not the norm, that isn't coming from senior leadership or middle management. And so these were some specific issues that we worked on. We provided a, a, a great deal of training to mid-level managers and leaders, and particularly focused you know, not just on DEI in terms of, um, you know, uh, equity issues and racial identity issues, although that was a part of it, but it was very much focused on practical tools for fostering an environment where feedback is not only welcomed, but invited and acted upon, and that the more power and positionality people have, the more incumbent it is on them to ask questions, to listen, to really dig into um, their, their empathy stores so that they could understand the challenges that their employees were bringing to them. And in the space of two years, we conducted a follow-up assessment and the, um, the levels of satisfaction and the ratings that employees gave to their leadership around some of these cultural issues that they had expressed concern over had increased a significant amount. And so that's just sort of one success story that I love to share because, you know, within a sh fairly short period of time, um, they were able to make those changes. They did require a commitment on the part of leaders to actually listen and, and take heart of what they were hearing from their employees. Um, and uh, so one other example I wanted to share that is more of a, a um, sort of cross-cultural and global example, I was doing work a number of years ago with um, the Republic of Kazakhstan, actually, and a group of government leaders. And we conducted this activity 
um, that was to explore the notion of who is perceived as part of the in-group and who's part of the out-group. And um, in doing this activity, it was, it was a, um, a group that did not speak English, and my colleague and I did not speak Russian or Kazakh. So everything had to be conducted through translators. Um, but the activity itself was a silent one. And at the end of this activity, um, they were all talking about, uh, you know, kind of laughing about the activity and what it felt like and processing it. And there was this beautiful moment at which the only woman um, who was in this group of leaders, everybody else was a man, and she had not spoken the entire week. Um, she had stayed fairly silent and observant. And she finally spoke up and she said, this is my experience on a daily basis. I am always the one that is part of the outgroup. I'm the one person that nobody sees, that nobody hears, that nobody recognizes as one of them. And there was this moment of silence and then this significant uh, sort of shift in the room as all of these male leaders realized the systematic sort of uh, exclusion that had been happening to their colleague. And so it opened up this whole new conversation for them in terms of how to combat some of these issues of gender exclusion within their own organizations and environments. So I think, you know, those are two very different but equally powerful examples of how education and training can be profound when we're focusing on creating space for everybody to be in conversation with one another rather than focusing on compliance or finger pointing. I, I couldn't agree more, um, Maria. I think that intentionality of having a conversation that's going to make some change lies at the heart of, of so many things. Unbelievably, we have run out of time today to consider. Oh. That, is the, that is a quick 30 minutes, believe me. <laughs> um, listen, everybody. Don't forget to visit engagesuccess.org to check out all the show notes and the fab free resources. Uh, and you can also download or stream any of the great shows from all of our archive, completely at your leisure. Maria, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, experiences, stories, and the positive things that can happen with us today. If people want to find out a bit more about you and what you do, where can they go? They can go to my website, which is msmglobalconsulting.com. And I also have a podcast called Culture Stew uh, that they can check out anywhere where they get podcasts. And also find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and any place else uh, where you tune in for your socials. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks very much for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us today. We'll be back again at the same time next week, everybody. I'm Eddie Gorham, and thanks for listening to Engage for Success Radio. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.